Welcome to the Line Break Podcast. My name is Chris Corlew, and with me as always is my co-host, Bob Sakura. Hey there. Hey. And this week, we again have a guest, so I am again going to pass the intro off to Bob. Bob, tell us a little bit about our guest. All righty. Another guest. This is the second in our run of poets that I feel really special feelings about. <laughs> um, uh, this is another winner from that 2018 Nostrovia Chapbook Contest, which I helped to judge. Um, and I guess I guess you know this now um, because you, you read my notes here. Um, but you, this poet, was the very first submission we got to this contest. Um, and I know I read it before, like, the reading period ended and before I was, like, going through a list of them. Um, but it was this incredible manuscript that, like, really really set the bar um for the rest of the reading it was just like one of those things where it was so cool to like open up this email read it and just be like oh shit these are gonna be good (laughs) (laughs) you know and 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 very cool to see we had this like little spreadsheet um and just watching the other readers how they were marking them and just like the very first one was like all three thumbs up and we're like well we all got to meet with this. Anywho, I'm getting into the story too quickly. Um, our guest today is a poet um, and a person that I think I admire a lot, just kind of watching um, watching them ever since, getting to know them and getting to know their work. Our guest today is Lyd Havens. Uh, Lyd's work has previously been published in Plowshares, The Shallow Ends, Tinderbox Poetry Journal, Foglifter, among others. They're the author of the chapbook I was just talking about, I Gave Birth to All the Ghosts Here. Uh, they won the 2018 Ellipsis Poetry Prize. They were a finalist for the 2019 Brett Elizabeth Jenkins Poetry Prize, a three-time Pushcart nominee, and perhaps, at least like I think right now, most importantly, um, their next chapbook, Namesake and a Half, is forthcoming from Game Over Brooks in 2021. Welcome, Lid. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, this is super exciting. I'm, Just I did not know that I was the first names. person. You were? I didn't know <laughs> <was> that. Like... <laughs> What a dream. Uh, what yeah, an absolute sure. dream <laughs> to, to be the first submission and be like, well, that sets the bar. I actually, I submitted, I was coming back from doing like a leg of shows um, in the Northeast, which was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And I was on a plane from Boston to Phoenix and I saw that open call and I thought, well, I guess this is what I'm going to do for the next five <laughs> hours. And so I submitted it on an airplane. I don't know if I ever told you that, but. <laughs> That's so rad. That's so cool. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, oh, <sighs> I, beyond, I mean, there's just not an answer. Uh, the press has not had chapbook contests since then, and, and among the reasons that's a bummer is I, I just, I so love that model and they stole it from another press. I don't remember who, um, <laughs> I, but I of like, yeah, but it was like the first time they did, it, I think it was a 48 hour window. I think we stretched out to a 72 hour window and just like, you see it pop up and you're like, well, I, you know, I gotta <laughs> either I have a chapbook ready or I don't, or I'm going to make a chapbook happen by Sunday or not. Um, and I don't know. Yeah. Anywho. <laughs> no, I mean, it was great. I mean, uh, and now I'm like trying to put myself back in 2018, which feels like it was 10 years ago. Um, but, um, yeah, no, I was just so excited. And I remember when I got the email from Chris Morgan, the other editor at Nostrovia, I was with my roommates and I just looked at my phone and I, I guess I had this look of just like shock on my face because all of my roommates were like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I was like, (laughs) nothing's wrong. Nothing's wrong. (laughs) 
Oh, that's great. I love it. Oh, and we have to give him his title. His official title on this program is Chris Morgan, friend of the show. Chris uh, Morgan, he, friend of the pod. Is, okay. He has, he, has, he has come up in like the last eight episodes. For <laughs> I need to bug him. I haven't had a chat with him in a while. Um, I'm sure he's going to listen to this, though. Um, but we got to talk about next chapbook, new yeah. chapbook, coming oh out God. Game Over Books. Uh, quick shout out to, I hope we can call him friend of the pod, Josh. We've emailed a yeah. couple times. Uh, yeah, Josh, yeah. Game uh, what can you tell us about it? What can we look forward to? What's going on? Um, okay. I'm really excited about it. Um, like just in the last week, I've been like, oh shit, this is happening soon <laughs> again. Um, so I, I've been calling it sort of like a gathering of my griefs. And like I've written about grief a lot. Um, it comes up a lot. And I gave birth to all the ghosts here. But um, And when I started first working on that manuscript, it almost felt like kind of like, the sequel to I Gave Birth to All the Ghosts no, Here. Um, and then in between that and this one, which is coming up, um, I mean, I, I became estranged from my father. Uh, both of my grandparents died, and I was really close with both of them. And so as I started working on it um, after my grandfather died and while my grandmother was still alive but still pretty sick, it sort of just became almost like a closer look at that grief and just sort of a reckoning over what it had done, what all of it has done to my family. Um, Cause I, yeah. I have a pretty small family and sure. I'm very, I'm very close with most of my family, at least my mother's side of the family. And so just sort of reckoning with this new grief and also the old grief of um, my uncle died very suddenly when I was 10 um, and just sort of coming to terms with all of that as well as my family history, while also, you know, giving thanks to my family. Because, you know, I feel very lucky to have a family that I actually like and, you know, that supports me and is just wonderful. And so, yeah, what to expect um, in the middle of the book, there is a 14-page poem about um, becoming estranged from my dad and also sort of coming to terms with an unrequited love that was always going to stay unrequited, um, which is two things that I was just sort of dealing with at the same time. And I was in a poetry class at Boise State, which is where I go to school. And we had been told like, okay, you're going to need to write like a chapbook for your final. And I emailed, I emailed my professor and she had said, you know, like 10 to 20 pages. And I said, what if I wrote a 10 to 20 page poem? And she was like, sure. And so that's where that came from. And it is probably, like, I don't think I've ever worked so hard on a poem, on just one poem. Um, yeah. And most of my poems are, like, a page long. And so the fact that this one is four, 14 pages, it might be even more when the book is actually formatted. And that I worked just so hard on it. And, you know, I had some really lovely guidance from my professor, uh, Emily Patinos, who is a wonderful poet herself and has a book coming out in April. Yeah, so I'm really excited that you get to see that really long poem in a book where most of the poems are like a page, if not like two pages. And then the penultimate poem in the book is about six pages. So you get to see some longer poems from me. That's awesome. Oh, man, that's really exciting. Uh, you're hitting like so many of my boxes. My current work in progress is a 20 page poem that I'm trying to submit Hell as a chapter. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I also have a small family who I actually like and I really love, but I also have 
an uncle I'm estranged from. So, man, yeah. I, I can't, and I have not been able to write about any of it. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited about, uh, really excited to hear all that. That's, that's, that's taking so many boxes for me. That's awesome. Well, that's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> you said right at the beginning there, a gathering of my Greeks was the phrase I think you used. Such great yeah. titles so, in your chat books, man. Like, no, such great titles. Uh, no, save that one for the selected poems, you know, like that. <laughs> <laughs> really good. Oh, my goodness. A 14-pager. Yeah. I also feel like I should maybe say, I don't know if I'm hoping I'm allowed to say this, but the title of the book might change between now and when the episode is published. I don't know yet. We're still, that's sort of something I've been talking about with Josh. Like, is this the real, like, is this its true title? Um, So if you're listening to this and you're like, wait, I thought it was called whatever the hell it's called and we end up changing it. Like, this was the first title. Um, (laughs) Still the same book. As someone who's terrible at title, titling things, I totally understand that. This book has had like 10 titles, and then we started talking about changing it again. And I was like, you know what? Sure. Let's, let's at least think about it. <laughs> um, when is it coming out, and when, yeah, when does that decision have to be made? It is coming out in May. Um, I think that mm-hmm. decision is going to be made in like the next couple weeks. But um, okay. I, And I believe pre-orders will be available a month before before the book comes out. Um, yeah. And I also just want to say that it has a kick-ass cover. Like I'm really excited about the cover. (laughs) So like, I think I tweeted about it or something. I was like, y'all, this cover is going to be so sick. And that was all I could say, but. (laughs) And what did you design it or was it somebody else who? No, no. A friend of mine designed it and I don't know if I can say their name, but. Yeah, somebody who, like a friend of mine who is so talented in both poetry and visual art, which doesn't feel fair to me, but I love them anyway. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's such a wonderful experience to have someone um, engage with your art or engage with your writing and then, like, create another piece of art that feels, like, so appropriate for it. Like Oh, absolutely. Um, like the cover design of a book or, you know, personally, when I... Uh, published articles on Cracked. Uh, every every time I read through the published version and see what the photo and caption team did with like some of my jokes, I'm just like, man, you guys are geniuses. This is yeah. great. <laughs> like I've been slaving over these words, and like, oh, what a what a great add on. Uh, yeah, I know it's collaboration great. and art is good. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. This is tremendously exciting. All that's like good to hear. I don't know. I'm sure. What what a cool. That like build up period feels yeah so exciting and weird and yeah, yeah I know it's yeah <laughs> right <laughs> um all right so I wanted to bug you a little bit I you actually created the segue that I needed to make this work oh, cool I wanted to bug you a little bit about uh, you as a poet and your formal choices because um, I was flipping through the chat book thinking about this and it just dawned on me of like the very like simple way that like page to page, you're like, Oh, something different, something different, something different. And so when you, you think of this poem found itself in this big poem you're talking about, found itself in this long form, Mm -hmm. um, how do poems find their shape for you? Because I do find you, you know, within, I think the chapbooks, maybe 25 pages, you make a lot of formal moves that excite me. 
Um, and that like kind of daringness I'm interested in. Oh, well, well, thank you very much. First of all, um, I have actually been thinking about this a lot lately because form wasn't even really something I thought about until after, uh, ghost was published. Like I just <laughs> sort of was winging it. Um, but then I realized that I seem to be more drawn to doing something quote unquote different with form when, I'm angry, which, um, which like, it doesn't always reflect in the poem. Like not every poem where like I'm doing something with white space or it's like really long or it goes from like an actual stanza to a prose piece to a, yeah, that doesn't always reflect, but yeah, I, I've been sort of trying to figure out why that is, but like, I know that there's the first poem in namesake is, this prose poem where the first line is, I'm going to paraphrase my own poem because I don't have it right here. Something like, I, I was 20 years old at a long glass table writing the same letter for a year. And when I wrote that line and I realized it was the first line of this poem, I was like, well, it should be sort of like a letter. And so it's just this block of text. And so I, I try to think about it sort of like that, like what I want the poem to both do and look like. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I know that I have another poem that I think I'm going to read like at the end of this, but yeah. where it's, I tried to sort of shape it like, Oh my God, what is it called? A scythe? Is that what it's called? Like the really, the, like the, the blade that's almost shaped like a C. Okay. Like, like what Raphael yeah. from the Ninja yeah. Turtles had. Sure. I <laughs> <No>. think. <laughs> Oh wait, um, no the, uh, the the blade that's shaped like a C. I think that's a uh, farming tool, right? Yeah, Cimitar, like a farming right? tool or, that yeah. you would see like on a communist flag. Um, oh, I, I tried to. I tried to yeah, I know words. Um, I, We're I, all wordsmiths I, here. <laughs> yeah, I sort of tried to shape it like that because there. I mean, there's a line about chainsaws in it but i was like how the hell do you shape it like a chainsaw so i was thinking a sickle yes that's what <laughs> aside that's what like uh, the grim reaper carries the grim reaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah i guess yeah, that yeah. would work too i guess right. that would work too but yeah so i try to think about stuff like that but i think most of it is just sort of instinct and then i go yeah. back and i'm like hmm should this be different yeah so I wish I had a better answer, but that is, that is basically, yeah, that's my process. That scans for me, when you're writing, when you're sitting down to write a poem, do you use a notebook or do you write on your computer? And if you use a notebook, what size is the notebook? So it kind of depends. Um, sure. I will typically, what I found is most helpful for me, and I know it's the complete opposite for other people, is writing a draft on my computer and then writing a and then writing it out in my notebook and that's where I can see like where like the syntax is iffy or if like I should break a line elsewhere and actually I have my notebook right here because I took notes about what I want to say later when we talk oh, about sure. a different poem and this is the size it's like a okay, yeah. diary size yeah okay when I was taking classes in person I had a much bigger notebook and like I would write my poems in there but I found that, you know, since since the pandemic started and I've been, you know, in my parents' house for the last year, I've I've gravitated toward smaller notebooks for whatever yeah, reason. Sure. 
that that makes that makes I, I've had a similar journey with notebooks where I used to have like a big one that I would like sprawl all over the page on and just mm-hmm. like 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 scratch and claw and stuff. But then I found that I wasn't disciplined. Like I am the op- like like you said, the opposite of what you do. Um, I wasn't disciplined about putting it from the notebook to the computer, so mm-hmm. I like lose work sometimes. Yeah. Um, but I've also gravitated to smaller notebooks just because like life has changed so much that I have like more things to carry around. And if mm-hmm. I have a notebook, I can stuff in my coat pocket yeah. and then take my kid to the park or whatever. And then just like, you know, scrawl. Yeah. So that's, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's really interesting that you do it the, the opposite way of what I think a lot of people do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I wish like, sometimes I wish that I could just be like the notebook person. Cause I, re- I listened to this, interview with Mary Oliver where she talked about how like she was just completely averse to writing on a computer and I understand people like I understand where people like that are coming from but I think one big thing for me is just that my handwriting sucks (laughs) sometimes I I can't I I look at what I write and I'm like what the hell does that say I found a notebook from around from the first couple months of 2020 and I was just looking through it and I was like well I don't know what that says and I don't know what that says and it's like it's sort of like the freaking Da Vinci Code, so I, <laughs> I have to, yeah. So that's another reason. It's just because I, my handwriting sucks. I was told by a professor a couple of years ago that I don't hold pens correctly, oh, no. <laughs> and I, I tried to fix it, but I just I can't, man. It's I was like I'm sorry. Right. I have the same problem with the pen holding, and it's just like so aggravating that like nobody tried to fix this. First grade, no. second grade. Yeah. Like y'all y'all watched. It was messy the whole time. You can I've got my mom keeps everything. So she has like report card from like, you know, fourth grade, you know, all these A's and then a C for handwriting. And I'm like, well, this is Yeah. I was <laughs> a, do... I was a fucking sophomore in college when a professor was like, if it hurts when you write a lot you're not holding the pen right. And I was like, well, how do you hold the pen? And she showed me, and I was like, I can't do that. Like, this is how I've been holding it my whole life. Oh, no. <laughs> you, 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 you guys are making me so nervous because my two-year-old only holds a pen like he's just, like, gripping it and, like, like stabbing <laughs> the paper. And he also switches hands, so I can't tell if he's left-handed or right-handed. Oh, my God. Maybe I'm just like, oh, this shows. is going to be a permanent problem, I guess. Let's say... Once he starts dribbling, that's going to be really helpful. Once he starts dribbling, it's going to be helpful. Yeah, that that's true. true. That's very true. Uh, <laughs> all right. Before we pivot hard to basketball, you're not allowed to do on our poetry podcast. <laughs> Lid, you brought in a poem for us to talk about. Okay. Could you read it for us? Mm-hmm. Yes, I will. Um, okay. So this is Homewrecker by Ocean Vuong. And it is in his poetry collection, Night Sky with Exit Wounds, which if you haven't read yet, you probably should. Okay. Homewrecker. And this is how we danced, with our mother's white dresses spilling from our feet, late August turning our hands dark red. And this is how we loved, a fifth of vodka and an afternoon in the attic, your fingers sweeping through my hair, my hair a wildfire. We covered our ears and your father's tantrum turned into heartbeats. When our lips touched, the day closed into a coffin. 
In the Museum of the Heart, there are two headless people building a burning house. There was always the shotgun above the fireplace, always another hour to kill, only to beg some god to give it back. If not the attic, the car. If not the car, the dream. If not the boy, his clothes. If not alive, put down the phone. Because the year is a distance we've traveled in circles. Which is to say, this is how we danced, alone in sleeping bodies. Which is to say, this is how we loved, a knife on the tongue turning into a tongue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, as we say on the show frequently, is a poem. That is a poem. That is a poem. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I, I've i read that like eight times in prep for this podcast, and I still like just... I used to have it memorized, but yeah. I, I can't say I blame you. It's, it's really good. Um, boy. I know. Where do we start? Um, well, I guess, you know, we've, we've, we've talked to, uh, we've, we've alluded to it, but to do the official thing, why did you want to talk about this poem? Why this poem? Well, I became really attached to it um, after falling in love for the first time, which is like, yeah. Um, <laughs> that'll do it. Yeah, that'll do it. That'll do yeah. it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and I and Ocean Vuong is probably my favorite writer of all time. Like, is just had a huge impact on me as uh, as a writer like his his first collection which i think is his only collection at this point um it came out when i was 18 and like my my background up until that point like was slam and you know i'm very grateful for that background but that was the first collection of poetry that i read where it really got me thinking about um imagery and how imagery and metaphor can tell a story without it being you know, just a straight line, because when you can be in a poetry slam, you have usually three minutes to state your case, read your poem, and then you're out of there. And this poem just, I mean, first, it's, it's fucking beautiful. <laughs> um, I, I have always really loved, I think that this is obviously a love poem but in another way it's a poem about destruction but that destruction is not you know romantic romanticized or glamorized in any way despite the fact that the language is stunning and just so visceral like your father's tantrum turned to heartbeats two headless people building a burning house and i think ocean vuong is really excellent at doing that and he's talked a lot about you know being somebody who English is not his first language and he grew up, you know, in a predominantly white state and noticed all the ways that English makes language violent, like just saying like, you nailed that, you're killing it. Um, and so I think that this is an excellent poem where he's writing about that violence in a way, but it, it's, a, it's, a bit, it's a bit more subtle than the actual love. Man, I, oh, there's so much to go off of. Oh man, I, I really love that. I I have not heard uh, Ocean Vuong talking about um, the ways English makes language violence, but mm -hmm. it 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 definitely does. Like 
those examples, like that rings so true. And yeah, there's like, yeah, there's an, there's an element in this poem to like, you know, a love as the escape from that violence and, mm-hmm. um, oh man. Um, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and the ways that, cause it reads to me, uh, not being familiar with this poem before you sent it over. Um, it reads to me a little bit like a, um, forbidden love sounds like so hacky, but like a, it's a love connected to a father's tantrum and a shotgun over the shelf and all that stuff. Um, so it feels like something that like shouldn't exist, but like Mm -hmm. all love should always exist, you know? And it's, it's that, um, it's that, uh, the expression of feeling that connection, um, amid turmoil and amid, um, oppression, um, that, yeah, just like rings so powerful with this poem. And then hearing you talk about it with like the way linguistic differences can sometimes make things more violent, uh, is really. Yeah. Astounding. You know? <laughs> yeah. I think that like, I think this is a poem about destruction and violence existing at the same time as love, but that love is still strong and resilient. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I see this as a very, like a poem very much about like resilience in a way. Yeah, that's a much quicker way to get at what I was trying to say. Yes. <laughs> well, I was struck by, um, I feel like I have heard, I, or read, I guess, it could have been read, um, but that interview you're talking about where he mentions um, English and the violence in it, and that for me was one of those like, oh, yeah, it's whoa a, moments. It's a just, it felt like, I had a new outlook on everything Absolutely. when I heard that. I, yeah. I know that he talked about, he was on um, Seth Meyers' show a couple years ago, which was crazy. Seth Meyers' show, which is on? Oh, my God. It's not online anymore, but, like, I just remember really watching I know, and I, I remember watching it in the break room of my of the office I was working at at the time and just being like, what? And then I had to go back to work. Um, I know that he talked about it too. Um, he was on, on being with Krista Tippett and he talked, that's what I'm yeah, about. he talked about it right. there too. And I remember, yeah, just hearing it again being like, wow. That was an incredible interview. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I know. Um, <laughs> I want to go back to Seth Meyers for a second though, because <laughs> I remember that happening and it was like, He's on the show because his novel is coming out yeah. and the novel's a big deal, but it still just felt like such a victory for Poe. It just I know. Felt like yeah. It's one of us. I know. I was like, Mom, there's a god on Seth Myers. Now I'm just imagining and- Seth Myers at AWP like signing up for a subscription to like Ocean Books or whatever. You know? <laughs> Well, it's, it's frustrating because that was like such a good interview. It you would was. have thought maybe like maybe there should be more, some more poets on late night. I don't know. There have <laughs> been a couple. I'm trying to think. There was one other where I I saw the name and I was like, really? So I guess like <laughs> Seth Meyers reads a lot, which is great. I know that he. What is? I forget his name, but he has a new book coming out like this month. And, okay. and it's a sequel to a book he wrote a few years ago that won the Pulitzer. And it's, what is it called? The Sympathizer. That's the first book. I don't remember his name, but he was, he was on Seth Meyers and that came up. Um, that came up when yeah. I was trying to look for the interview that Ocean Vuong did. 
Right. And I was, and then I had to Google it and like, there was something on NBC's episode and then episode website. And I was like, Oh, well maybe it's here. And then it said, sorry, video no longer available. I was like, Let us have this man. <laughs> <laughs> also, since when did CBS shows start like deleting their online videos? That's so, I, I think I, I know that NBC does it. Like there have been oh, so many like that, yeah. SNL performances right. where like i've wanted to watch it again and it'll go back and i'll be like where did it go <laughs> it's probably some cynical business decision with like streaming platforms or something but, i know uh, uh, oh boy. Um, okay. so, <laughs> all of which is leading to um that was an that was an excellent excellent uh side path i know um, that was that really, <laughs> was delightful i was as i was rereading this as you were reading it but like what struck me was the violence in the language here and, and choosing to like repeatedly find different ways to kind of point to these violent things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the, the really simple one that I think just like stands out here so much as the, the always another hour to kill and just like how loaded yeah. something we say all the time becomes in this poem. Yeah. But I hadn't quite thought of it that way until you said it of, of you're right that like, it's us and all of his poems are like stunningly beautiful language. Yeah. Um, but how, you know, that contradiction of this really beautiful language and then this really violent language. Yeah. Is doing so much here. Holy smokes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't want to get off yeah. on too much of a tangent about this, but it reminds me of um, when, uh, before he left Twitter, this was like pretty early in the Trump administration. Kabe Akbar was tweeting things like um what does uh, it mean to write in a language that produces things like this i was just thinking of that yeah yeah yeah. um a question i still have not come to a satisfactory answer in my mind i I haven't either yeah same absolutely not Okay. <laughs> Where do we even go from there? I know. Oh my god. We, we do what we always do, and we hard pivot with no segue into. Well, we, we just go deeper into the poem. We go deeper yeah. into the find poem. Find something to answer. Find it. something else to gush about. Um, our second question is always, "What's the move? What's the thing on the page that the poet does that's getting you excited?" If it's the thing we were just talking about, that's fine. But if you also have something else, go for it. I mean, I'm just looking at the notes that I took down because I was really afraid that if I winged this, I'd just be just sitting here like, it's really good, guys. Um, That's what we say all the time. (laughs) Um, I've always felt like this poem, this might be really like cliche to say, but it really reminds me of a painting. Like it is a very vivid poem. It is such a, like, out of like, I... Out of every poem I've ever read, like this feels like one of the most vivid poems I have ever read because you have these really vivid and brilliant images like late August turning our hands dark red, the shotgun above the fireplace. And then you have some surreal aspects of it too. You have the headless people building the burning house and that last line about a knife on the tongue turning into a tongue. And then I also just really love the, let me just look at it one more time. I love the enjambment that is like you can't see this if you're google this poem if you're listening to this and just look at it there there the line breaks at a knife on the tongue turning i love that enjambment that's the kind of shit that makes me go wild hell yeah um so i mean this is like 
it's a poem that I feel like I can picture in my head and I see like these brilliant reds and I see, you know, when you're in a room and the sun is going right through the window and you can see all the dust floating in the sunlight. Yeah. That's what that poem, like this, that's what I picture when I read this poem. Um, and this is kind of the poem that I might be jumping ahead here, but this is the poem that made me realize like how much I love metaphors and imagery and that I could use it to quote unquote, tell a story. Because like I said, I can't like in slam, like there are, there are a lot of poets who are doing just incredible things in the form of, you know, oral performance of poetry, but it is like, it can be often sometimes very linear. Um, It's a straight line. You have three minutes. You got to do it. Um, And this is a poem that makes me want to slow down and just really consider what I'm writing. I love that. Yeah. I feel like that is the best way I've ever heard the quote unquote slam versus academic debate. Um, Cause I, I definitely like when I was like, you know, first learning what poetry was and, 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 and what, uh, you know, what we're all doing here, like an undergrad, um, it was like, uh, it always felt like, it felt like the debate was framed to me that slam is lesser than. Yeah. And then yeah. I read the, uh, the breakbeat poets, um, anthologies and just like got really excited about them. Yeah. But yeah, it's like, you can definitely see that like a poem like this and slam is, are doing different things on the page and have different objectives and both are fine. Not one, not one is not better than the other. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But like, yeah, that's, that's absolutely it. There's a little bit more slowing down, exploring moments, exploring mm-hmm. um, imagery to get out of your feelings, yeah. as opposed to just like the verbal onslaught that is slam. Which again, there's one is not better than the other. I'm not saying mm-hmm. that, but yeah, that's that's an advantage to this style of poetry and the way you're framing it um, is a yeah. really wonderful way for me to think of yeah. slam versus I just academic wanna... debate. I just want to hop onto that, that, that you, you know, that connection you're making for me, um, cause it's, it's, it's one of those things I, this has come up between us before of, of it's, you know, it's, it's such a tired, exhausting thing. Uh, you know, yeah. I've like been in a room, you know, where someone like tries to make some comment about page versus stage and just like one of those things like, can we not have this conversation? Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. It just, at this <laughs> point, like it's very hard for me to even really take that ongoing exhausting (laughs) conversation right seriously just because like we have poets who you know quote unquote got their start in slam like Dinez Smith and Sam Sachs and Hanif Abdurraqib who at this point have not probably not competed in a slam in like half a decade (laughs) so it's very bizarre to hear like them called slam poets yeah heard and heard that being used as like not necessarily an insult, but the connotations aren't great. Like I get called that sometimes and I'm like, guys, I haven't competed in a slam in almost two years at this point. <laughs> yeah. And it's very like when I came, when I started studying poetry, like in an academic setting, I know that like I got called that a lot and I'm like, but that's not what this is. Mm-hmm. Like, right. a, like a poet who takes part in slam a lot will tell you there's no such thing as slam poetry or that a slam poem is just a poem that's read at a slam. 
Yeah. It's a very weird, like, it's very weird how that became a genre and also became Uh like something that doesn't have good, like the best connotations because there are so many quote unquote slam poets who are just, who've written just beautiful books that do, that do the work both on the page and on the stage. So I digress. This is not really what we're (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I could go on and on and on and on about this. Um, I also, it makes me think of like when I, uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm also a musician and like I spent my high school musician day in a punk band, but also like at school I was learning jazz and now I play like weird instrumental half jazzy, half prog rock stuff. And it's like, if someone was then like, oh, well, you're a punk musician, I'd be like, Yes, but also no. Like, why, you know, why do we feel the need to permanently categorize artists, you know, that kind of right. thing? Like, yeah, like, there have been events where, like, every other poet on the roster will be just be, just be a poet, and I'll be a slam poet, and I'll be like, I don't want this to be a big deal. And I don't, right. like, hurt my feelings. But on the other hand, right. can I not, yeah, like... Like, whoever's in the building, it doesn't hurt my feelings, but are you being a dick right now? I know, <laughs> it's always just like, yeah, it always feels very, like, even, like, I don't think most people have this intention, but sometimes it feels very minimizing when you're yeah. the only person who's being called a slam poet, and you're like, I just go to slams and scorekeep now, guys. <laughs> I don't actually read poems. Like, I'm a slam scorekeeper. But I'm not, I don't know if I'm a slam poet anymore, which, like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> this has nothing to do with. I would say, we, we've gone, we've digressed a ton. I'll leave us with two things. Okay. One was, I think what you said, though, about the way that the form, like, the context of a form is affecting the form of the poem. You have three minutes to read this thing. I, there's something really important there to think about um, in terms of how that influences what those poems are, how that influences how those poems are received, especially beyond the context, Yeah. Um, which is part of that bigger conversation that I don't want to get into. But I always like to bring this up when this conversation happens, and I don't know if this is true for other people, but I know at least for myself, any negative attitude that I ever had towards slam definitely came from a place of jealousy, I was a high schooler who didn't have a place to read poems or like get that reinforcement. And a lot of people came out of that environment and are much better poets for it. You know, like you get that instant feedback from people. Um, You get this place to like try it out in front of people. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I was 19 and terrified of reading a notebook to three people in my room, you know, like, Oh, I'm so jealous. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, no, it's, it's great. And I mean, I, I've started, yeah, I mean, I'm at a point where, like, I don't know if I'll ever compete in a slam again, but the, but what it did for me, especially, you know, I started competing in slams when I was 15. So, like, wow. yeah. It, yeah, it did great, great things for me, and b- both in poetry and outside of it. And that's something I'm always going to be grateful for. It's just, it is a very, it's a very interesting little bit of discourse that just does not seem to want to die, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kill the discourse. Kill the yeah. discourse. Yeah. And I'll, I'll echo everything you both just said. You know, me being in high school and being a musician, like, I don't play in bands now. I don't I don't play shows now. But, like, there is something super validating about doing your art in front of people and getting feedback. And yeah. Slam provides oh, yeah. that. And 
you know, like Bob, you were talking about it, it helps you feel a little bit less alone in your art mm-hmm. making. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. Genuinely did still don't know if anyone in my high school liked poetry. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Important question. Yes. Cause I agree with you. This poem to me is red. How do you do that? Man. Yeah, this is like one of the only poems where like I read it. I'm like, it has a color. It has like a color. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I'm sure there, there's probably some, um, I mean, it's subjective. But I know that it is, I think it is just the, the fact, A, that the word red is in this poem. But it's not Yourself. just, but it's not just that. I think it's the word, it's the use of like dark August and mm-hmm. heartbeats. And I mean, another thing that sort that I didn't, I didn't really like, I knew that this poem was read like in my heart of hearts. And then a couple years ago, I don't remember what this was for, but the actor, I think his name is Zachary Quinto. He was, mm-hmm. yeah, he was, he was Star Trek guy. Yeah, the Star Trek guy. He's he he and a bunch of other actors were reading poems by um, by gay men and bisexual men, and Zachary Quinto read this one. And in the midst of him reading this, actually, there were like these red, I don't even know what they were, but they were there were these images that were like red and orange, and that sort of that sort of confirmed it for me. I'm like, this is a red poem. So I think it's um, I think it's a lot of things. I think it's you know dark August heartbeats wildfire. Right. Um, the yeah. fact that it's a love poem, the fact that it's a poem about summer. Yeah. So I don't truly know, but that's, that's where I'm at with it. It's like, that's, I think it's a strong answer. Yeah, that's a it's great answer. I will say it immediately took me to it, reading it for whatever reason, took me to my grandparents' farm, which, uh, yeah. is down in Tennessee. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it immediately gave me an image of like, playing in the hay bales in the barn um, for some reason. And I, I don't know why that is, but like the whole time I was reading it, I was like, this has nothing to do with the, the context of the poem, but I just feel like I'm there. And so, yeah. I, I, and, and yeah, that's, that's red. That's dust particles <laughs> coming in from the light. That's, yeah. that's the orange yeah. of the sunset, like all that stuff. Like, yeah, yeah I, I got all that too. So yeah, I don't know where that comes from, but it, it's it's there in the poem. It's somehow. strong. It's really yeah. strong. <laughs> Which is kind of the magic of poetry. Like po- yeah. poetry does this type of stuff to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have either of you read his novel? Yes. No, I haven't. So it's actually really interesting that you say that it took you back to this farm, because the novel, mm-hmm. a lot of it is about the narr- the protagonist having this you know high school love affair with a boy who lives on a farm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And like the second you said that, this poem to me clicked back to some of those memories. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a really, it's a beautiful novel. I, so it is just brilliant. I, <laughs> I have a copy that I left behind in Boise when everything shut down. And I've just oh, been no. sort of thinking about like, it's in storage somewhere. And I'm just like, I cannot wait to reread that book <laughs> when I get back to Boise. Oh, oh man. Uh, it's, with the specific pain of being away from a book that you really want to get back to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and when you can't even, yeah, there's no calling back to. I, I have too many memories of like 
I know this book is on my bookshelf at my parents' house. Yeah. Mom, can you find this book right now? <laughs> and her not being able to. But, you know. I, I had a Zoom conference with a professor a few months ago where she was sitting in front of a bookshelf and I could see that book. I could see on her for briefly gorgeous. Oh, so no. I was looking at it like, hi. <laughs> and, and I said, like, I hope this isn't like weird because I don't I don't like commenting on people's living spaces when we're in Zoom that just feels weird. But I was like, you have like three of my favorite books on your shelf. <laughs> and she was really she was really cool about it. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> that is probably a good policy. Although yeah. Bob, your plants look very nice. Your plants do look very nice. They're hanging out over there. They need some more sun, but we're working on it. Um, so since we're getting so heavy into imagery, I feel like this is a great opportunity to uh, spin off into our other question, which is off the air, you gave us a little bit of insight into how this poem has gone beyond the page for you, and you adapted it in a screenplay. Um, screenplay, an inherently visual medium. Um, mm -hmm. Well, the end result being an inherently visual medium, I guess. Um, yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I took a class my sophomore year called The Writing Life, which was taught by just probably my favorite professor that I've had. His name is Sam McPhee, um, and he is just so smart. Like, he just gets, he, what I have always taken away from his classes was just, like, the ability to think about things in a way that I don't get to think about them anywhere else. So this class was just about how writing affects our day-to-day -day lives. Um, and so we wrote like a lot of letters. I know that I wrote like, I had to write a recipe um, that was more than a recipe. And then in the middle of the semester, we got an assignment where we had to adapt one piece of writing into a different piece of writing. And I think I almost immediately knew that I wanted to adapt this poem because it's just such a vivid poem. And I was really excited about it. And I, I think a lot of, I remember talking with other people in the class and they were really having a hard time with it. And I just felt really lucky because I was like, I'm having the time of my life doing yeah. this. Like, this is great. I've never, I've never written a screenplay before, but I was immediately, I was like, this could be like a short film. So, I mean, I should have probably read it again before I, before I, I did this, but basically it's just a story about these two young boys, I think they were around like 18, who they carry on with this, this secret love affair while they're, where they'll meet in one, of, in one of their attics and they'll just play old records and they'll just, you know, do what high schoolers do when they're dating. Um, I remember that I thought a lot about like what music I would want, like what music would live in this poem slash screenplay. And so I remember I had like At Last, by Etta James, and Try a Little Tenderness by Otis Redding. Yeah. Um, and it's just sort of about this, they sort of come to a crossroads where one of them is like, I wish we didn't have to, you know, make this a secret thing where we're just in the attic. And one of them is getting ready to go to college. And, you know, one of them has a father who's homophobic to a point of violence. And so that's, you know, that was where I went with the, you know, your father's tantrum turned into heartbeats. Yeah. Um, and I wish I could remember how it ends besides the fact that it ends with try a little tenderness, which is one of my favorite songs. Sure. Um, but yeah, no, I took a lot of the images in this book, the, yeah. the wedding dresses, the car, the phone, the shotgun over the fireplace. And I just adapted it into something that, 
I hoped would do the poem justice. And it was, it was a really great exercise for me. I was so happy to have this, an assignment like that. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a great, it was a great experience. I, I don't, I don't know if it, it probably isn't very good, but in the <laughs> moment I was like, this is my magnum opus of the semester. It this- sounds rad as hell. It sounds exactly <laughs> like what the poem should be if the poem was a movie. And as soon as we end this podcast, I'm going to go play the scratch off so I can get a production company and, uh, and make this movie for you. <laughs> like, it sounds really cool. Like everything you were saying just sounds really cool also a class the writer's life yeah. sounds like something i should have been assigned it, when i was in college i have taken yeah I, I think i think sam is the one who came up with it for boise state and i think somebody else teaches it now and i took the very first incarnation of it and then yeah and i'm taking i'm taking two classes with him right now and just again feeling like i'm thinking about writing in a way that i don't get to think about writing you know when I'm just on my own and digging around in my in my room, um, and I'm I'm really really grateful to have to have had a professor like that. There are a lot of really great professors at Boise State who have just given me a lot to think about and a lot of space to grow. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, that's so awesome. Ugh, I want to go back to school. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, you've been to school like twenty times. <laughs> you go to school every day. Don't you? Wait, what? You go to school every day, technically, don't you? Right now, I go to school two days a week, oh. and every other day is on a computer. <laughs> but, okay, that's true. For a yeah. brief moment, I was like, the pandemic doesn't exist. But... <laughs> um, it, it has actually been really good to get back that's to good. going to a place two days a week. It's it's one of those things where like I had a lot of weird feelings of like this is possibly more dangerous of a thing that I should be doing, yeah. but they're doing an okay job. It's a ghost town on campus. That's good. Um, That's good. Yeah. It's, it's how it should be. I'm mostly hearing you say that and you know, I'm, I'm teaching like composition courses, so it can't quite be the writer's life, but I'm like, Oh, I need to make some changes just based on hearing a little bit about that. Yeah. that it was so a, it was a great class. I, yeah. Yeah. It was great. It reminds me a little bit of a, a class I took that was called literature from the writer's perspective. And it was like a literature course, but like, instead of approaching this, like this, this piece of work as a critic, let's approach it as writers. And that was just like super useful. And I bring that up to say the writer's life sounds like the kind of class that if you're a creative writing major or a creative writing student and, and like, like someone who, you know, wants to, take writing seriously, it's always nice to have a, have a vehicle to step back and like talk a little bit more about what we're all doing here kind of thing, especially since, you know, a writing career can be the kind of thing where you do a million different things like write a chapbook and then write a screenplay or, you know, write, uh, you know, freelance copywriting for a ad ex agency that, exclusively deals with direct mail for car companies you know like something like that um yeah it it, yeah. it, it sounds like one of those courses that is like uh just uh something we could in, we could incorporate a little bit more into uh oh the, yeah uh, the writing curriculum as we oh, experience yeah. it right 
Yeah, and it was just, it was just fun. Like when I think about the writing, yeah. book, I think about like you know poetry and nonfiction and fiction and whatnot. But you know, there was a summer where I took a job. I took a freelance job writing copy for some Canadian company that did hardwood flooring, and it was just yeah. every day I was like, "This is what I'm doing as a writer!" <laughs> Yay! Learning a whole bunch about hardwood floors, right? Now. I did learn quite a bit about hardwood floors, which is now just gone, but. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the only job that has ever paid me significant money for uh, for writing was um, should I say the name of the company? It's fine. Uh, uh, was Groupon, and mm-hmm. I learned so much about various practices that salons and massage therapy companies do. I was like, I never expect this to be part of my <laughs> intellectual uh, development, but <laughs> here we are. Here we are. I, I thought you were going to say something about uh, parking because there's a period of time where uh, parking showed up in your writing. Oh, yeah. I need to revisit that chapbook, and I haven't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, my working hey, title hey, for that chapbook is I Quit. <laughs> because <laughs> I started writing it while I was working there, stopped writing it, and then, you know, quit the job, which was maybe the best, aside from my wedding day and the birth of my son, probably the best day of my life. <laughs> and, um, yeah. So I was like, I'm going to title this chapbook, I Quit. I Quit. <laughs> so, uh, we'll see if that gets published. We are uh, oh my goodness. getting a touch-off track. Um, um, oh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's on to me now. Yeah. And I was going to say, we've talked a bit about influence, so we might circle back to this. I'm going to say, how about, Lynn, you read your poem to us now? Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Here it is. Um, this is the poem that is shaped like um, a, a sickle. That I, I already almost lost it again. <laughs> kind of shaped like a sickle, but also could be shaped, I guess, like, I think somebody told me they look like stairs, which is fine to me, too. Um, There's layers here. (laughs) Yeah. So, yes. Okay. This poem is in my book that's coming out in May, um, and it is called Choke Cherry. I imagine my uncle and grandfather's last moments, my own hands a triangle around my neck. My thumbs just barely touch. I am hardy like an oak fighting a chainsaw. I cough up sap in the sink, and the porch light goes out. When I was 13, I spent three months trying to get bath water out of my nose, my blue socks sticky on the tile floor. The nurse asked me what was on my mind, and and I turned the Walkman's volume up to capacity. I'm almost 22 now, and stumbling over my own memory like deforestation. What have I lost? My wallet? Four wisdom teeth? I had a roommate who stole all my silverware once. My parents' wedding cake is rotting in the freezer. My grandfather's last words to me are in a stranger's handwriting. I guess I'll just say it. My uncle broke his own neck while I was on my tiptoes trying to hang a mirror up in my bedroom. Everything my grandfather ate for two months straight became liquid in his lungs. I am still as tall as I was at 10. I need to get a new inhaler. The nurse asks if I'm a smoker. No, but my parents are. No, but my best friends are. No, but when I was a kid, we almost lost our house in a wildfire. No, but choking to death seems to run in the family. 
Sometimes I wake up gasping for air like my bed is on fire. Somewhere in Illinois, there's a tree named after my uncle. It could be any tree, though. How could I know which one? Would I see the smoke? Wow. Wow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What an ending. Oh, my God. Yeah. Man. Yeah. And then we just, we just, you know, sit here and, and feel for a little bit. <laughs> oh, oh, man. My um, I'm, I'm so excited to, to see this and revisit it. Um, you did this thing that I asked when I brought up form earlier that I, I do, I think of, of you of this poem to me was moving in one way. Mm-hmm. And then you got this responding to the nurse, mm-hmm. I think it was, um, that just like transforms where we're going and the pace of it and the yeah. rhythm and oh, incredible. Oh, well, the specifics, the visuals, like, oh my goodness. Thank let's, you. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> There's so many, yeah, very specific visuals. And then, like, yeah, like Bob was saying, um, as someone who gets, very stressed out anytime I enter a doctor's office. Uh, the the hard pivot from all of this violence and tragedy into a nurse asking you for something. I was like, ooh, I was stressed out before, but now I'm really stressed out. <laughs> uh, but, you know, in a good way. In a, in a good way. <laughs> uh, it's, man, it's a great poem. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Did you, so uh, you live in Boise. Did you grow up in Boise? Did you grow up in a rural no. environment? Um, I grew up in... So I was born in Tucson, and when I was about eight, we moved to basically the other side of Tucson, basically on the border of a county that my parents now live in um, that is pretty rural. Um, and, I mean, probably like probably the most rural part of that region of Arizona. Um, sure. And so, yeah, we lived out on the end of a dirt road, we had all these mountains, which was beautiful, but then they yeah. would sometimes be on fire and that would be scary. Right. Um, yeah. And then I moved to Boise and Boise, especially in the last few years has had just Boise is a Valley. And so all of the mountains that surround it, when there's a wild, when there are wildflowers on the mountains, all of the smoke just goes into Boise. Like it's a bowl. Um, oh, sure. So, yeah. Yeah, so there have been many times when I've gone to the doctor and, like, the sky is orange and it's so hard to breathe outside. And they'll ask, you know, well, are you a smoker? And then I have to be like, well, no, but my parents are, my friends are. And they're like, you should probably stay away from them. I'm like, why would I want to do that? <laughs> so, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, I, it's, that's really interesting. I've never been to either Tucson or Boise, but I, Feel like I can picture them from pictures I've seen and time I've spent in the West, but like, yeah, a lot of the imagery in, in your poems and then and then the uh, Ocean Blanc poem that you brought just reminds me so much of Tennessee. Uh, reminds me so much really? of like, where I grew up. Just with yeah, like the um, uh, the I don't know the yeah the, the the specific way you talk about like trees and the sky and light shining through windows and things like that and. Um, the way you uh, talk about houses and how they're built, it just, it sends me right back to, uh, to the uh, sort of weird half suburban, half rural 
uh, Tennessee town I grew up in. And yeah, that, I don't know. It's striking. It's, uh, um, and again, a good thing. I'm not, you know, it's, it's no, thank you very much. <laughs> but, uh, that's, that's really actually cool to know. Cause I have never been to Tennessee. Oh, sure. <laughs> All right. Um, it's okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Arizona's okay. I know it was, I know it was, I know it was beautiful, but also kind of scary, but sure. Yeah, same with Tennessee. Beautiful but scary. Yeah. Okay, so now that I've gotten all vulnerable about my, about my hometown, um, <laughs> let's uh, let's do a hard pivot to the uh, the basketball question, uh, which is going to be fun this week because Lid, we like to you know end the show with basketball talk. Um, and you said off mic that your basketball knowledge consists of the ball is orange, and I have the same birthday as Michael Jordan, <laughs> which. <laughs> Makes me think you have more basketball knowledge than like half the team owners in the NBA and WNBA, but whatever. <laughs> That's good to know, I guess. <laughs> so, um, so our question today is going to be pretty innocuous and also involve Michael Jordan. Um, recently, the sp- trailer for Space Jam 2 dropped. For anyone who miraculously hasn't seen Space Jam, it's a movie where aliens want to kidnap the Looney Tunes. <laughs> And so the Looney Tunes kidnap Michael Jordan to help them win a basketball game, which will settle a bet that will save the world and the fate of the Looney Tunes. It's a really <laughs> smart premise. So, so the question um, is... Really quick, though, I haven't seen Looney Tunes. So this... Oh, no! Saying, no I haven't seen Space Jam. I haven't seen Space Jam. So, oh, that's perfect. No, well, I mean... That's, that's, on the clear. No, that's what the movie is. I kind of knew this... your face as you described plot, the plot of Space Jam was fantastic. I knew, like, it was about a basketball game and that Michael Jordan was involved, but I did not know that the world was at stake. And so that... that he, it was a It's deal. disappeared down a... Um, down uh, a, a hole on a golf course because Bugs Bunny uh, has a magnet that... Uh, <laughs> absorbs his golf ball and then when he's reaching in there they grab his arm that's the premise of the movie okay. or that's that's how they kidnap him rather. that's amazing um, the look on your face is incredible right now <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay you can ask the question i'm sorry i just needed to say i miraculously have not seen it but now i want to <laughs> i love so much that you haven't seen it oh that's great that's oh that's wonderful um <laughs> so our question is, what fictional character, cartoon or otherwise, would you rely on to win a basketball game to decide the fate of the world, or at least the fate of the Looney Tunes? Um, I can go first while you both think, or if you have an answer off the cuff. I think I do have an answer. My very first instinct, Ooh. which was a, such a wrong instinct, but I have, and I have a different answer. But my first instinct was to say Marlin from Finding Nemo, which is just so stupid not good. Marlin is a fish. Marlin can't dribble. Um, <laughs> but, very, yeah, Marlin, Marlin would not have the best handles, no. No. So, But my other answer, and it feels I know it's not cool to talk about Game of Thrones in 2021, <laughs> but my first instinct where I'm like, okay, that's a good answer though, Brienne of Tarth. <laughs> I think Brienne of, hey, Tarth, yeah. Brienne of Tarth could fucking do it. Um, better than mine. That's for sure. <laughs> you know, um, some important aspects to have when you're playing basketball is um, uh, uh, chemistry with your teammates, which Brianna Tarth has in spades. Uh, given the uh, friendship she develops with Jamie, 
And uh, it's also very good to be tall. And Brienne of Tarth is very tall. So yeah. I think that's a great, well, great she's, answer. And she has precision. So I think I think yes. that'd be good. Mm. I think she'd get along great with... And now I'm just trying to think of a loony... Bugs Bunny, probably. <laughs> she'd probably want to kill Bugs Bunny at first. But... She'd probably eat Bugs Bunny, but, you know... I mean... <laughs> She and Elmer Fudd would probably be friends. Like they both like killing oh, yeah. people, you know. I think she'd want to like protect Tweety Bird. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. She would take pity on Tweety Bird, I agree. I'm curious though, if your first instinct was was Marlon, like what does he have to offer? He's a great chemistry I, guy. Great good chemistry. Guy. I think just the fact that he has he has pers- he's he persists. Persistence. There you go. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the persistence, oh, yeah. um, the adaptability. Mm. I mean, yeah, I mean, a lot yeah. of luck was involved in finding Nemo, but I think that there was some. <laughs> he does adapt that, yeah. to every situation very well. Yeah. Yeah, like he was in a in a freaking whale, and he he freaked out about it, but you know he handled it. Yeah, that's true. That's strong. That's so true. you do have you do have two other starters on your roster. <laughs> <laughs> this is my. My fantasy basketball. Your fantasy. <laughs> All right. So our fantasy basketball team is currently Brienne at center, Marlon, probably an assistant coach, but you know, assistant <laughs> point guard. <laughs> uh, Bob, who you got, or do you want me to go? I, I'm like 30 minutes before we started. I, I looked back at our notes and I saw the question, and I was like, "How did I not come up with an answer for this?" I think. I've only used this answer once before, <laughs> but I would like it to become my meme answer for every one of these. <laughs> give me, give me Frankenstein's monster. Hey, oh yeah, why not? He's tall. He's strong. I don't know if they understand basketball, but um, we can get him there. They could get him there. Michael Jordan could help with yeah. that. He would at least be better than uh, who's it? goon from the NBA. Like, he would at least be better than uh, Chris Dudley. Chris Dudley. Frankenstein's monster would be better than Chris Dudley. That is true. Yes. Goon is the word. That's the guy that I want is someone who's going to be tough, do the the dirty work that I don't want to take care of, push people around. That's saying something because you like doing the dirty work. My kind of guy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You have an answer. I have an answer I'm really excited about. Okay, I cannot wait uh, to hear this. And probably neither of you will understand who I'm talking about. Okay, oh. that's fine. Peppa Pig. <laughs> oh, I know Peppa Pig. I know Peppa Pig. <laughs> I, I believe it. I believe it. Peppa could do it. Well, here's the uh, thing about Peppa Pig. First of all, the thing she loves most and is the best in the world at is jumping up and down in muddy puddles. And jumping up and down in muddy puddles has to translate to the basketball court somehow. The other thing about Peppa Pig is if you Google Peppa Pig height, <laughs> you will learn that Peppa Pig is seven foot one. <laughs> Why? Why is Peppa Pig seven foot one? So now we've got a big ball squad. We've got Frankenstein's monster. We've got Peppa Pig. We've got, um, uh, uh, sorry, Lynn, who's Tarth. your pick? Brianna Tarth. Yeah, so... That's that's a uh, that's that's a that's a massive front court. Then let's right. just put Michael Jordan at shooting guard and Marlon at yeah. point guard, and everyone else will cover up for Marlon's inefficiencies. Um. When, when I when I first read the question, um, I think it's very important to know that 
since May, basically the only thing I have watched is Survivor. Um, and there is a seat. One of the earliest seasons has a guy who is seven feet tall and he's just, he's just a guy, but he's seven yeah. feet tall. And it, when he gets eliminated and he's like with Jeff Probst, Jeff Probst looks like he is an ant compared to this guy. <laughs> and I remember just thinking like, could I say when I first saw the question, I was going to say this guy, I think his name was like Mitchell or something, but then I read fictional and I was like, no, he's real. But <laughs> that was another, like, I thought of Marlon, that guy from Survivor, um, Gus from Breaking Bad, and then I got to Brianna. <laughs> all, all solid choices. I would probably put Gus in the front office. I'd probably have him doing, like, managerial work or something like that. But um, I would just, and then I just, yeah, then I just started thinking about well. him killing Bugs Bunny, and I was like, no, 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 no. Well, let's, let's get him out of here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you don't want you know. Oh, it's uh, so violent so quickly. <laughs> getting one of his goons to uh, take a box cutter to Bugs Bunny. <laughs> wow, and, and that is the image you're gonna leave us with. <laughs> oh man. Well, Lynn, this has been so 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 much fun. Uh, it has. It's been uh, a lot. When your uh, when your chapbook comes out, we'll have to have you back on to uh, to uh, to promote it and stuff. Um, Aww, um, but yeah, be this has been a this has been an absolute delight. Oh so yeah, you. I've had a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. So pumped for the chap. Uh, we're still not sure what the title is, but coming well, in May. It's it's coming. It's coming, and I'm hoping that it's okay <laughs> that I was like, by the way, the name might be different, but um, yeah, I'll, they'll know. They'll know. No, yeah, it's part of the process. We all know it's part of the process. We're all yeah. adults here. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Our uh, music is produced by Brennan Johnson. Our artwork is done by A.M. Strickland, and we'll be back next week.